And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sidney Wildsmith. For 41 years, Dr. Gordon Haber has been studying wolves in the field, or perhaps we should say, to be more specific, in the grand spectacle of North America's tallest mountains in Denali National Park in Alaska. Today we go in-depth as we visit with one of the nation's premier wolf experts when your voice of the earth continues, here on the Wild Side News. Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. Today, we have a special show as we go in-depth with the Toklat Wolves of Denali National Park in Alaska. We talk with Dr. Gordon Haber during segments one and two of today's show. Wolves are one of the most fascinating animals on Earth, if for no other reason than that their heirs are perhaps one of humankind's most amazing companions. There is a special understanding between man and dog and man and wolf. In segment one of today's show, we explore the nature of their unique family structure. And in segment two, we bring you up to date on the fate of the Toklat wolves and wolves generally in Alaska, where an alarming series of changes to their hunting and trapping laws threatens to take out thousands of these amazing beings. So today, we bring you an extended weekly Earth Summit, which begins right now. Welcome to the Weekly Earth Summit, which today will be the most important 60 minutes on Earth. I'm your host, Sidney Wildsmith. Dr. Gordon Haber is an independent research biologist who has as much knowledge of wolves as anyone on the planet, having spent most of his life following them on the land, into the high country, and from the air. We last went in-depth with Dr. Haber in 2005 as he talked about his research on the Toklat wolves. Today, he brings us up to date. So now, we go in-depth with Dr. Gordon Haber. Having grown up in Minnesota back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, I was extremely lucky to be studying biology and the natural sciences, went to the University of Minnesota and became a naturalist because Minnesota was one of the few states in the lower 48 that had any wolves at all. And so as I became a naturalist, and my job was to teach people about, about the natural history of Minnesota, certainly wolves were part of that story. And so wolves have been a fascination of mine for much of my life. They are as well for most people, although some people f see wolves in, in many different ways. Uh, it's an amazing story and an extraordinary legacy. And as we now head into the 21st century, wolves are facing some extraordinary challenges. We certainly are learning a lot about them. We face some daunting tasks ahead to try to continue to bring forward the story of the wolves. And we couldn't talk to anyone 
really, quite honestly, I think right now, with any more knowledge than our, our guest now who's joining us from Alaska, where he spent a lot of time researching wolves. We're talking with Dr. Gordon Haber. Gordon, welcome to the Wild Side News. Pleasure to be here, Sydney. Well, Gordon, you've uh, you've lived, uh, in, I mean, I'll take two on this. Um, in some respects, Gordon, because I've talked with you before, I had a fascinating discussion with you a couple of years back at a very critical time in your research. You live a, a life that I'm somewhat envious of. You've spent the last 40 years of your life studying a particular group of wolves up in Alaska. Why don't you begin to inform us about what you've been doing? It's actually 41 now, and that's only one of about, uh, well, uh, I, I guess over the last 41 years, I've probably studied uh, close to over 100, 100 or so different groups. And in Denali right now, oh, about 18 or 20, Denali National Park. And But one group in particular uh, has been there the entire 41 years that I've been doing research in Denali National Park. That's the uh, Toklat, also known as East Fork Group of Wolves. When I arrived in 1966, the famous naturalist Adolph Murray was still in Denali, and he was just kind of informally conducting observations, but he told me that uh, he was pretty certain that the, the wolves in this group that were there when I arrived in 1966 were the same group that he had studied and made famous in his uh, his uh, groundbreaking uh, monograph, The Wolves of Mount McKinley, in 1939 through 41. So I know from my own research that this particular group has been there now for at least 41 years, and based on what Aid Murray, and that's what he went by, Aid, not Adolf, told me uh, it could well go back uh, to 65 years or more. So that makes it one of the oldest known family lineages of any non-human social vertebrate anywhere in the world, any any wild non-human social vertebrate, right up there with a handful of others like, uh, I believe, one of Jane Goodell's chimpanzee troops. Uh, they've been studying that now, and they know it's been around for 40-some years. I believe there's a group of orca whales off the northwest coast of Washington that's been studied for 30-some years. And I think a pride lions somewhere in East Africa that's been studied uh, 20, 30 years. So, But it's one of a handful that has been around for decades, many decades. And uh, uh, so that just makes it an absolutely fascinating subject for study and just to observe, just to, just to be around. Just to back up a little bit, in the case of the Tokod East Fork group, there's several characteristics, I think, that have enabled them to persist as long as they have. First of all, and this this is probably something that you could identify in many successful societies, of not just wolves but other species, including some human societies. First of all, they're fortunate to live in an area of fairly good food resources, a lot of diversity in the three major different uh, large mammals that they can prey upon, uh, caribou, moose, and, and mountain sheep. They've also been able to adapt socially to long-term changes in these food resources. And then the group is characterized by a lot of very sophisticated cooperation. Now, whether that's due to the, its longevity or the longevity itself is due to the, all the sophisticated cooperation is an open question, although it's more likely to some positive feedback loops going on there. They both sort of reinforce each other. Longevity arises from the cooperation. The cooperation arises from longevity sort of thing. In terms of uh, a family of animals, and I mean that in the biological sense, the ways in which wolf packs or families uh, cooperate are absolutely extraordinary. And certainly as a hunting pack, they have to do that. They have to cooperate. What have been some of the observations that you've made that you think are outstanding about the wolves? Well, first of all, wolf social organization is based on at least well-established groups in the kind of ecosystems where I'm studying them. They're based on 
two major evolutionary underpinnings, cooperative hunting and cooperative breeding. And they work hand-in-hand, as you implied. In in terms of their cooperative hunting, yeah, there's some really phenomenal things that they do. Uh, Some of their strategies just just make me drop my jaw every time I see them. Uh, They'll, for example, in in the past I've watched not only this group, but also I might emphasize there was a neighboring group as well living in this same rich prey area. I called them savage after the Savage River drainage. They were eliminated by uh, illegal aerial hunting apparently in in 1982-83, and the groups that have recolonized that area since then, three or four of them have been pretty well wiped out in short order as well by by other hunting uh, activities in surrounding areas. that group to the east or the subsequent groups have never had a chance to reestablish all this high level of cooperation that I'm talking about now with regard to Toklat. As far as some of the hunting behavior I've watched, some of the cooperative hunting, they do things like, for example, set up strategies where, where you'll see the wolves approach, maybe you'll see a caribou in the, in the distance, maybe a mile away. And, and I've actually watched these kind of tactics where then maybe stop a mile from the caribou, and then maybe two or three wolves will go a couple of miles around to the left, and maybe another one or two will go around to the right a mile or two. And they might spend 20, 30 minutes setting up like that, and and they all kind of get in position, and you can see them looking at each other from the from a mile or two away. And then often some high-ranking individual will then make the first movement toward the prey, and the others will kind of close a net, and they'll often drive the prey towards some for example, a difficult escape terrain or toward a high bluff or something like that. And, or maybe one or two of the wolves will be in ambush somewhere and the others will drive the prey toward the wolves waiting in ambush. But very, very deliberate and clear strategies where they're thinking these things out ahead of time, planning them in advance. Not accidental. They're very carefully laid out. A lot of that kind of stuff. Well, it's interesting. Some of the uh, uh, research that's coming out, strangely enough, about autistic children suggests that they have a more animal mind, not as adapted to human interaction. And therefore, some of the the examples of extraordinary uh, mental uh, facility and memory. There was an artist, for example, uh, who was very autistic, who was able to look at a, a complex city scene for a matter of 15 minutes and be able to draw it from memory, absolutely with every detail and in absolute precision. Extraordinary mental abilities in terms of the visual cues. So when it comes to the, the animal mind, let's say of a wolf, I would have to assume that to a large extent as they uh, travel throughout their territories, they develop a very complex knowledge about the terrain and various features and helps them in their hunting. Oh, yes, very definitely. There's no question about that at all. Uh, when the, when you're talking about a well-established group and, and has a lot of experienced individuals, they get to know every mountain, every pass, and every major prey hunting area, and, and just like the back, you know, the back of your hand. And, uh, you know, these are large areas, too, like the Toklat group currently has a territory of about five or 600 square miles. At, at one time, way in the past, it had a much larger territory, close to 1,000 square miles. But, yeah, they're, they're huge areas, and they're very complex, a lot of mountainous terrain, and, and, but they know these areas very well and, and just make the rounds on a regular basis every couple of weeks or so, getting around to the best prey areas. They know exactly where they're going. It's not random at all. I think we should also inform people uh, who may not be familiar with Denali really what the nature of that landscape is, because that is some rugged country. Well, it's probably just about the most beautiful country in the world. It's dominated, of course, by Denali itself, the highest mountain in North America at 20,320 feet, and a lot of other high mountains, uh, Mount Foraker, which is... uh, right next near Denali, uh, third highest mountain in North America. 
and just a heck of a lot of other uh, mountains in the you know eight to ten thousand, eight to fifteen thousand range, and then then of course all sorts of mountains you know in the more common uh, four to six, seven, eight thousand foot range. It's just absolutely beautiful country and very very rugged mountainous country. It's extraordinary because the wolves therefore make this their home, and some of the hunts that you've uh, documented so beautifully. Some of the aerial photographs you spent a lot of time in the air. We'll talk about that too. You post a lot of these images on your website, alaskawolves.org. gives examples of the, of the fact that these animals are working very often at extremely high altitudes in very challenging conditions. Oh, you bet. just never ceases to amaze me and how they run up and down these steep slopes and on these high knife ridges like they weren't even there. You know, I, I give one example somewhere on the website. To, uh, I record a lot of these kind of things to, when I'm observing the wolves either from the air or the ground, but... You know, one one typical example is uh, a group of wolves went up about a full, I guess it was 50 or 60 degree pitch slope, snow-covered, rocky, very difficult type of climbing situation. They just went straight up that, an 1,800-foot change in elevation in 18 minutes flat, 50 to 60 degree angle slope pitch. And then when they got to the top, they just broke into intense play like there was nothing to it, and then raced down the other side. That's just real typical. They just do that stuff all the time. Now, that's when they, when you're talking about experienced wolves. The young wolves have to be taught how to do that stuff. They're afraid of those high places initially, but when they've got experienced adults to, to guide them, uh, you know, they learn fairly well. And with regard to cooperative breeding, one of the most fascinating things that one sees is a lot of behavior called helping. And helping is when a wolf assists a breeder. Most helping involves young females. And, and in most cases, uh, the helping behavior where the younger wolf assists the breeder, uh, it's an artifact of something that, that that animal stands to gain from the standpoint of its own personal fitness. Like, for example, practice for motherhood in the future. Or maybe... Uh, uh, by staying around and helping that wolf is, is able to delay dispersal to other areas until resource conditions improve in those areas. But with regard to these wolves, and especially in the well-established and long-lived groups like Toklaat and the, and the one I mentioned earlier, the neighboring group Savages, which has been wiped out, you see a lot of altruistic helping as well, where uh, the helpers are not just young, inexperienced females or young, inexperienced adults, but, but also commonly quite uh, you know experienced adult males as well as females and you even see breeders assisting other breeders and in fact it's it's often difficult to tell who the breeders are really because they all behave in, in, in the same way toward helping raise the young maybe the classic example of this behavior was uh, in the old savage group the beta male pretty well for three or four years was prime reproductive years, he pretty well ran the group, especially during the winter. He was the, the guy I usually led when the group traveled. He initiated most of the hunts. He, and meanwhile, the, the alpha male uh, pretty well followed quite passively, often near the end of the line, and, and uh, just kind of took over in, in a few really uh, obviously important activities when the group had gone longer than normal without success in the hunt, uh, when they confronted uh, other wolves, from another group, that kind of thing, and but the alpha, but the beta male who did most of the leading deferred all breeding to the alpha male. It was the alpha male who who did all the breeding, even though clearly uh, the beta male had an interest in the uh, female who was in heat each year. Uh, he still deferred it to all all of this behavior to the uh, to the alpha male. 
were there challenges between the the beta and the alpha? Uh, did the did the alpha male have to kind of earn that respect, or or was it as you say you're using the the term deferred? I'd like a, a better well, understanding. There was never any challenge, really. Uh, basically, when the female and I should point out that the courtship and mating period in this area usually occurs late February, early to mid March, and during that period when the female is in heat. And, and sometimes there's more than one female in heat, but uh, more commonly one. In this particular case, this relationship that I'm referring to now, the old savage groups, uh, alpha and beta males, the the alpha male would be walking right behind the female in heat, and, and typically the beta male would be just right behind him. But every few seconds or 20, 30 seconds or so, every at least every minute or two at, at the very most, the alpha male would turn and face the beta male, and the, almost as if to say, well, you can't come any closer. Immediately the beta male would just submit without any questions asked, but then he'd get right up again and, and follow behind. Obviously, very interested in, in, uh, in mating with the, the female in heat, but not daring to challenge the alpha male and not ending up mating at all, but yet still continuing to to then uh, resume his role as, as the guy who was really running the routine activities of the group. And I might emphasize that at all other times of the year, other than this mating period, those two individuals, the alpha and beta males, had a very close relationship. I think they were probably siblings. I'm not certain of that, but uh, they worked together smoothly in the way they you know, interacted. And, and uh, but it would, during this one period, however, the alpha male made it clear that he was the guy mating with the female, and that's exactly what, what happened. Wolves form really close pair bonds. And these are very strong bonds, and, and they last for a, a lifetime, pretty much. But that doesn't mean that the, the male involved in a bond doesn't end up maybe mating, mating with another female. Even though he's close to one female, he can still end up mating with another female, and it doesn't. And, and in fact, the, the, his own mate may even cooperate in his uh, activities while breeding with another female. In 2001, the established alpha male was killed during some radio cowering, uh, and uh, it was a week after he had mated with his established mate, the female. Well, two months later, she produced that litter at their established den, but one of her uh, three-year-old daughters one day brought home a couple of males that I had never seen before, and I knew they were new males just by their color. They had ear tags. It turned out that they had actually come from 200 miles away, another study area of mine. And a a couple of the uh, two- and three-year-old offspring brought these two males home. And, and of course, Mother was pretty shocked when these strange wolves showed up at the den where she had just had her litter. And she didn't take too kindly of it at first, but then she got over it. And The short of it is that the, the two males ended up taking the group over. The dominant of the two males actually formed a very close bond right on I mean, initially with, with one of the uh, alpha female's daughters, a three-year-old, and, and the next mating season in 2002, they ended up, not surprisingly, as uh, as the uh, primary mating pair. There are occasions where an alpha, an alpha male who has a very strong bond with a particular female can still end up mating with other females in the group who may come into heat. The other, I guess, example of really extreme cooperation, maybe this is the ultimate, is, is the inbreeding that I have seen in, 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 in these groups, not uncommonly. In most animal species, that becomes a very significant problem. Well, it does. And, and, and you know, it leaves one scratching his head a little bit, certainly me, as to as how the wolves get away with doing it. But I, there's no doubt at all that there is some inbreeding, particularly at the sib-sib level, going on, but also... Uh, father-daughter. Uh, uh, in the old savage group, 
for example, there were four consecutive years where the alpha male mated with uh, two different daughters and uh, after the first daughter died and produced a total, I think it was 28 pups, came out of those four consecutive father-daughter matings. And not only that, but two of the pups that were born uh, in the midst of those four years, they ended up, when they reached sexual maturity two years later, as sibs, they ended up producing a litter themselves. And that litter was then raised together with the uh, alpha uh, pairs litter, the father-daughter litter, within the same group. They all cooperated raising each other's pups. It, it's all right to use these terms, and I use them all the time myself, alpha male, alpha female, and all that. But really, what we're really talking about here, when we're talking about wolf social systems, in most cases at least, uh, are, are, are extended families. That's what these amount to. And the alpha pair is nothing more than the father and the mother, and then the, you have all the offspring and, 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 and uh, brothers and sisters of the alpha pair, I suppose. It's, it's just like a basically a big extended family. That's the most accurate way to think of at least a well-established wolf social system. You're absolutely right about that. It creates a much more accurate picture of what you're talking about. It's just that these kind of social systems do differ a little bit from human, oh, quite a bit actually in some regards, from human extended families in that they're able to do things like you know, inbreeding without problems and, and whatnot. But basically that's what they amount to is big extended families. And that term family, incidentally, that's an accurate scientific term. A lot of scientists shy away from using it, but that's a very accurate and, and it's a far more accurate term than pack. What is the common lifespan of an, a healthy wolf that's going to be dominant? How long do they live? Well, it depends, but in a well-established group that isn't subject to a lot of uh, other problems in, in areas where there's poor uh, food resources and a lot of intergroup hostility and all that, in a well-established group, and, 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 and again, where there's no uh, human impacts, uh, it's not uncommon at all for uh, an alpha male or, or female to live to be 12, 13 years old, and in one case, in the, in the Toklat group, there was an alpha female that, that retained her rank as alpha female from about 1978 until she died, 1978-79, until she died in, in 1991, and her overall age at the time of death, and it was a natural death, was about 18 years old. My gosh. And in fact, even that last year, in the spring of 1971, she had two or three pups. And she was one of the best mothers I've ever seen. I mean, she really knew how to take care of those pups. And even though she was old in 1991, she still did a good job of raising the two or three that she had. Usually the litters are larger than that, but when you're 18 years old, I guess there's fewer produced. It's a hard life out there. In many cases, they're in very challenging struggles, killing situations, uh, and many many of them get injured and killed and hurt and other things. So for them to be able to survive that long is really extraordinary. It is, and... and Boy, you're right. They they face a lot of problems. In fact, I just saw an example of uh, another one of the many I've seen of how resilient they can be. Uh, just a few weeks ago, there was a male in, a, in another group. Pilot and I were flying and uh, came upon him, and he was obviously injured. I, I suspect he might have been kicked by a moose, but he could not. He could not get up on his hind legs. He was just dragging himself along. It was pretty pathetic looking. And, and over the next week or two, he just remained in the trees in one area. And then, boy, I tell you, uh, just a few days ago, we, we, we tracked him and found him, and he's, he's all right. He's moving around with the group now. But a couple of weeks earlier, I mean, it looked like he was paralyzed in the rear end. He couldn't do anything but drag himself a few feet at a time. That's all, you know, he couldn't get up in his hind legs. And it seems to be fine now. 
I encourage everybody to visit Gordon's uh, website, alaskawolves.org, where he is literally every every few days now he's posting new material, and I think you have some expected to uh, be put up uh, in just a few days. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I want to I want to put up a, a photo essay in some of these uh, pair bonds during the mating season at Toklat that I just observed uh, you know, over the last couple of weeks, and, and some related material and. And unfortunately, there are some some pretty bad things going on up there too, with wolves getting trapped and snared and whatnot. And there's going to be more entries up, kind of going over that stuff. Those aren't the most pleasant things to put up, but I, I feel it's important to address them. On the positive side, you you spend a lot of time uh, flying around an aircraft, and so there are these ex- extraordinary images that uh, permeate your your blog of these phenomenal images of wolves and packs and hunting situations. One of the ones that absolutely captivated me was a picture of a series of wolves sitting on a ridge top, high up on some ridge, all sitting on their haunches, all staring off in the same direction. I don't know if this that particular situation was a one in which they were hunting that way, visually hunting, but you do have some extraordinary tales of their... I think I know the one you're talking about, and yes, you're right, they were hunting, uh, there were 12 of them, and they were looking off several miles in the distance studying a caribou and actually contemplating how they were going to set up a pursuit strategy to try to capture that caribou, and that's exactly what they did. It was an example of... What I referred to earlier, the example I gave where, you know, the wolves are sitting there watching something and then, you know, a couple of them will peel off in one direction and others will go in another direction. They'll set up kind of a net, you know, where they're miles apart from each other and then close that net in a coordinated way. That's what these wolves were doing. That, to me, is a powerful image because they're all so united in their effort. There is this commonality, this cooperative effort as they stare off into the distance. And it does make you wonder... Uh, how they communicate. Certainly they communicate in myriads of ways with body language, and I'm sure you have many tales about that, but it almost seems as if there's some other way in which they're able to uh, to share ideas and strategies. They have very high-level cognition, and, and they also have unbelievable sensory abilities. I mean, these wolves, their eyesight, for example, hell, they can see things. I watched them once, uh, the Tokwat wolves once pick out a a group of about 20 white sheep that were sound asleep on a slope about eight miles away. They weren't moving at all. They were just on a white slope where there had been fresh white snow, white sheep against the white snowy background. They picked them out and went straight over across the valley to them and uh, and ended up catching and killing one. Uh, but they saw those sheep motionless from eight miles away. They have an unbelievable eyesight, but their noses are just as good. They, they find winter kills, you know, under avalanches all the time. They... Their hearing is excellent. I mean, they have unbelievable sensory abilities. But I guess the way to think of it is like this. Think of your, the most intelligent, expressive, emotional dog you've ever known. And we've all known some pretty uh, pretty sophisticated, pretty interesting and intelligent dogs. That's nothing but an average wolf. Quite literally, I mean that. Talk about some of the ways in which they communicate. I just think that's so fascinating. I mean, there's the body language. There's the howling. Uh, what have you learned? You've spent so much time watching these animals. I'm... You know, just curious what your your observations may be on that. Well, they they use their noses to find each other. They they just look at each other and they seem to be able to understand sometimes what uh, what's going on in each other's minds. I don't know how, but I see them just looking at each other from a distance and then coordinating something after that. They howl back and forth. Of course, that's a form of communication. And, and like you said, they just different uh, ways in which they carry themselves, their postures and whatnot. Uh, yeah, they have all kinds of sophisticated cooperation. Everything you see in dogs that you know and a lot more. 
They seem to be actually happy creatures. There seems to be a spirit about them that is filled with play and excitement and, and exuberance. That's exactly right, and I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, they, the way they carry themselves, you can just see they just love uh, moving around and hunting, and, and uh, they have that bounce in their step. Uh, that's one of the things, whenever I see wolves in a zoo, I, there are many things that bother me about seeing wolves in a zoo, but I don't care how nice you make the enclosure. You cannot duplicate the things that they... I mean, they just wolves just love to travel, for example. They just love to move over these large distances. You can just see that in the bounce, in the way they travel, their step. And even in rugged country like where I observe them, and and you know when you when you take them out of an area of 600 square miles where they range around so regularly and seem to enjoy it so much, and stick them in a even a nice 10 acre enclosure in a zoo, well, it just doesn't hack it. I mean, it just isn't the same thing. You know, it's it's fascinating because um, of course wolves have so much lore in terms of their danger, but in reality they. Uh, to this date, I don't know if there's been a, a, a documented case where wolves, as a pack, attack humans as they would a another creature, unless they're forced to defend themselves. I mean, that's any any creature would do that. But they seem to almost have some sort of awareness uh, with humans. Well, I can just tell you from my own experience. I've 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 been around wolves in every situation imaginable on the ground. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time in the air in the winter, but in the summer, most of my work is on the ground. Has been for. 41 years now and I've you know I've even been inside of dens I mean that's not something I advise but uh, you know and I've been around wolves on kills as many as you know 18 20 wolves all around me you know where I surprise them accidentally you know in the brush and I've never felt threatened at all I mean I feel a lot more threatened when I walk down the street of any big city and little ankle biter dogs that run out from houses you know scare me a lot more than anything I ever encounter when I'm out there in the wilderness with these wolves and usually all alone too they're, they're very mellow creatures, actually. That's the one thing that you notice when you get to know them real well is they, they have a very mellow kind of demeanor compared to dogs. Uh, dogs are much more high-strung, and uh, these wolves are just really laid back most of the time. And there are situations that can uh, result in problems, and they usually relate one way or another to uh, food conditioning. That's a no-no. I mean, uh, when, when wolves get used to taking food at a campground or something like that, that can lead to problems. In fact, most of the problems... And there have been cases where wolves have attacked people. Most of them can be related one way or another to food conditioning. That's something to be avoided. But short of that, I see this all the time in Denali, the wolves, they may come close to people and walk by people, but they're just trying to get from point A to point B. And I, I've had you know wolves go by me and, and interact closely with them, as I said many times, and never have felt threatened. But that can all change once a wolf becomes dependent on a person or learns to accept, take food at a campground or some similar situation. Another situation that can lead to problems is when there are dogs uh, around wolves. Wolves are very hostile toward uh, other wolves, uh, you know, and other groups, as well as to any other canid, really. And, and so you go traipsing along with your dog through wolf country. Don't be surprised if you get attacked by wolves. It isn't going to necessarily happen, but it can. It's possible, and there have been documented cases of it. Now, in that situation, would they be after the dog, or would they actually go after the human? Or? Well, they're after the dog. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just a, an alien canid as far as they're concerned. Right, and it's right. something that they have a hard time tolerating. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't happen all the time, but there is a, a distinct possibility of when you're out there with dogs in wolf country of being attacked. So those are the two. Those are the two danger points, flashpoints, sort of, uh, with wolves versus humans. Is 
either through food conditioning or in the presence of dogs. And both of those kind of conditions can easily be avoided and should be. Our conversation turns next to the current status of the Toklat wolves and the wolves of Alaska, which are under assault from senseless policies supported by faulty science. What you are about to hear may alarm you, as it should. Stay tuned as the Weekly Earth Summit continues in just a moment. back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sidney Wildsmith. It's hard for most of us to understand why wolves should ever be killed. What is happening in Alaska as we speak goes way beyond understanding, as the state frames the killing of wolves with the extermination of rats. As we speak, innocent wolves will be shot, snared, and trapped. Why? We pose the question when your Voice of the Earth continues here on the Wild Side News. Our conversation continues with Dr. Gordon Haber, and now focuses on the current state of the Toklat wolves and wolves throughout Alaska in this special weekly Earth Summit. Let's now make a little diversion here and and come back to the Toklat wolves. You know, when I last talked with you in 2005, you had been studying the Toklat wolves, and they had just suffered an enormous loss. Why don't you give some of the history of that and why that was so significant? And then I really want to go and find out what's happened because that was a dramatic hit. Yeah, I know that your blog is covering the changes since then so effectively. It's a fascinating story. You're right. They took a big hit in 2005. Actually, they've taken a number of hits over the last 10 years, but that's probably the most serious one so far. That was a very uh, distinct and very, very serious hit. And the reason it was is because in one fell swoop over a couple of months, the alpha pair, uh, both of them were killed. One was trapped, one was shot just outside the park. They were killed, and a couple of pups were killed, and, and then also a young newcomer female, one of those rare newcomers that was accepted into the group just the year before and had become the primary caregiver to the pups. She was also killed. So the upshot of all of this was that a group of 11 wolves in, in uh, as of uh, February 2005, this group had seven or eight years of experience, the experience of the uh, the alpha pair and, and the other adults. In short order, they were converted to six one- and two-year-olds. Those were the only survivors after all the dust cleared. And let me point out that my research has shown in the past that in this kind of an area where wolves depend heavily on moose and sheep, it usually takes two to three winters of learning from the adults for these uh, uh, younger wolves to become proficient in hunting. Those prey animals in particular, because moose and sheep in different ways are extremely uh, tricky to hunt. It just it takes a lot of skill and things that they have to, the young wolves have to learn. So here we have these, these six uh, young uh, toe-clout wolves, yearlings and two-year-olds, suddenly left on their own. Well, wouldn't you know it, by pure coincidence, that that big hit, that conversion of the group from this vibrant 
group of 11 with seven, eight years of experience into suddenly just six orphans, young orphans. That happened right at the latest peak of abundance of the snowshoe hare cycle. Now, snowshoe hares, uh, Lepus americanus is the scientific name. They have a well-known cycle about every eight to 11 years. They peak, and these peaks will last a couple of years, and then they come right back down pretty steeply, and then there's a long low until the next peak. Well, as I say, these young wolves were orphaned during that peak, and they were pretty lucky because it's pretty easy to hunt these hares, and, and they showed a lot of uh, uh, ability to do so, and, that, and you know the hares are so thick that this, this is one of the highest peaks I've ever seen. You could look down in a willow patch maybe, oh, I don't know, 100, 200 meters in diameter and, and easily count, you know, in, in many cases in 2005, 2006, flying over, you could count 50, 60, 70 hares. So the wolves were able to thrive pretty well the last few years. These young wolves that had not really learned that well how to hunt moose and sheep were able to survive and actually thrive in terms of producing a lot of pups and high survival rates and everything because of the uh, uh, coincidence of this snowshoe hare peak. Well, now the the peak is, is coming down dramatically, as always happens with these snowshoe hare peaks. And uh, there's still significant numbers of hares out there, but there's far, far fewer of them right now as we speak than there was even at the beginning of this winter, and certainly compared to the last two winters. Well, of course, I was sure wondering, well, what are these wolves going to do at that point? Uh, will they will they know how to start hunting moose and sheep again, even though they really never learned this when they were orphaned? And the answer seems to be yes, but not very well. I mean, not with the kind of skills that, this group had developed and I observed for decades prior to this hit. I've, I've watched them, in fact, as recently as two, two days ago up in sheep country. They, they seem to be figuring out that there's something to eat up there, and so they're getting up there and they're chasing sheep around and catching a few now and then, but with nowhere near the skill that the group did prior to the loss of all the experience in 2005, but they are at least trying to do it, and they seem to have the idea how to go about doing it, and it, hmm. it, it's going to take a while before the group develops all the neat pursuit and capture strategies and killing strategies that I had observed for previous decades, but they they do seem to uh, to know that that's where they got to go now, since the hares are pretty well disappearing they've, they've got to go back up into sheep country and figure out how to kill sheep and they're, they're trying and, and meeting with some degree of success from the perspective of research this is rich uh you'll be able to watch what happens well exactly and i i i understand how important of an opportunity this is now let me emphasize that these wolves now are four five six years old they have a lot more savvy than they would have had a few years ago had they been forced to start figuring out on their own how to hunt moose and sheep they, they at least have some idea how to go about it now. They're just a, several years older and, and in general are, are, are a little more savvy. So that certainly helps. And, but I also want to emphasize that while they're up there chasing these sheep around in, in, in the high mountains and also uh, taking on moose, meeting with some success, it's all pretty awkward compared to the smooth way that this group was able to do these kind of things and hunt these ways prior to the loss of all this experience. All the finesse and, and the knowledge of the country, individual mountains and all, that's going to take a while for that to come back. Right. And maybe some of it, some of the sophisticated strategies they use may never come back. I mean, there's not much doubt they're going to be able to hunt. It's just that the group had accrued decades of, of experience and, and developed some really sophisticated strategies, and that stuff is lost. Some of it will 
redeveloped some new strategies, but, you know, it's like a culture that's just been set back, and it's just a shame. It's just the idea of taking a really sophisticated society and just knocking it way back in time again. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense, and it's just sad from any standpoint. Well, that raises another aspect of this. Part of the story of that particular hit back in 2005 was a very sad story about what's happening at the borders of Denali National Park, which, of course, in many respects, it's a wolf sanctuary, but again, it's actually not. There's some really unfair systems and loopholes being created that are not serving the, the wolves at all. Well, the biggest problem is in one area in particular along the northeast boundary of Denali National Park. Way back as early as my 817-page Ph.D. dissertation, this area was identified as the most important ungulate, that it means loose caribou and sheep, wintering area for the entire Denali wildlife ecosystem. And in that area, the map, uh, the map boundaries have absolutely nothing whatsoever, no relevance whatsoever to the ecological boundaries. They cut right straight across this wintering area. And these are traditional areas that moose and caribou and sheep from the park go to regularly. And, of course, wolves from many areas go there at times to hunt them. As a result, well, trappers just line right up there on the, on the, on the map boundaries, which make no sense whatsoever. And so these wolves are, are continuing to be hit. And, and, and this winter has been the worst one in a long time. I mean, the Toklak group, as we speak, has lost about six or eight members so far and, and and some of them we're now seeing, as of a couple of days ago, coming back into the park wearing snares yeah. with their necks halfway cut through. It's hideous. It's terrible. We know they're being trapped and snared, there's, and there's at least four or five other groups that have been wiped out in that area this winter alone. Some, some of the groups that use that area at times in the winter come from as far as 60, 70, 80 miles away, way out in central areas of the park. It's such a an area of such traditional importance that certain groups that don't have the rich prey resources that Toklat has have to migrate there to meet their winter food needs, and they're being hit as well. Well, the aspect of this that is so totally unrealistic is the fact that, as you say, there's a line. And for people who aren't familiar with, with what's going on there, there's a line. And now with the GPS, that line can be a foot on this side or a foot on this side, and any wolf that steps 10 feet beyond that line becomes fair game to be taken in any number of different ways. The and that's trappers ex- are lining right up on that line. They know exactly where it is. They're taking advantage of it. There's at least three or four trap lines out there this winter. And, you know, it's not something that we just discovered. This area has been well known as as the most important wintering area for Denali wildlife, uh, you know, it's been known for decades and published. And, you know, every time I try to get protection in that area, most shocking of all is the resistance I get comes primarily from other biologists, primarily from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. They just totally poo-poo the effort and say, well, you know, these wolves will repopulate the area, you know, no big deal, you know. The primary opposition is coming from other biologists. That's what's most disgraceful. One of the stories is that there's literally a, a snowmobile line that is X number of feet outside of that GPS-identified boundary where there's a, 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 a line of traps so that some trapper is literally setting traps and snares. You can, you'll tell me more about that. Literally right outside the border. How long yes. does that? How long does that does that trap line run? Well, there's actually, actually at least three trap lines this winter that are doing exactly what you just described, right along uh, one section of the boundary. This is uh, the there's a couple of maps in, in some some of the blogs that I wrote earlier this winter in the blog section of my website showing the area we're talking about. But 
there's an, a stretch of the northeast park boundary that maybe runs so oh, I don't know 11, 12 miles, and three trap lines along that section of the boundary alone. They literally set bait. Oh yeah, for these well, animals. Yeah, that's how they do it. They uh, this is one of the most hideous things of all. They use straps and snares, but snares are particularly common, and they'll put a bait there, some old moose guts or something frozen, you know, in a in a plastic bag, you know, a couple of feet diameter or so, and throw it out there, and, and they'll lace the area of the brush with as many as I've seen. 50, 60 snares in one area. Maybe maybe 20, 30 snares is more common, but the wolves come into these areas, you know, they smell the baits, and they come into those areas, and they get snagged in all kinds of hideous ways by the legs, by the midsection around the neck, by these snares. And, you know, uh, when they work properly, the wolf dies pretty quick, but uh, that they don't work properly a lot. I mean, right now, I mean, at Saturday, uh, and I'm going to unfortunately have to put photographs of these up on my website because i want people to see how bad it is but you know as recently as saturday i photographed a wolf wolf that's been running around now with a snare that it obviously pulled loose out of broke the snare the anchor cable but it's uh, the snare is cut about halfway through his neck the pictures i took of it just recently i mean its whole front part of its neck and its face is swollen up like a balloon because What's... the snare is so tight on it What's very difficult is the fact that this is becoming politicized somehow. I don't quite understand this, but it almost, as you say, it's getting worse instead of better. And that's exactly what we don't need. It's almost as if there's a, a war that's being waged between the pro-wolf hunting advocates, which also appears to be moving into the state levels of decision-making in the fish and wildlife and others, uh, and, and those people who say, excuse me, this is inappropriate. The hunting season for wolves has just gone goofy in in Alaska. Why don't you talk about some of those details? Let me put it this way. You can do anything you want to a wolf pretty much in Alaska, and there's some law somewhere that will make it legal. Right. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, and a lot of it is really uh, deceptive and intentionally so. For example, anybody who's got an Alaska driver's license, you can get one of those after about 30 days. Go to the nearest department store, sporting goods store, any place you want, buy a trapping license for 15 bucks. That trapping license enables you to kill wolves with no limit whatsoever, starting in most areas, either October or November, right through to the end of April, even though the pelts are no good at all after mid to late March because of rubbing and the warm weather and all that. You can kill them without limit. You don't even have to use a trap or a snare. With that trapping, so-called trapping license, you just shoot them. That's legal with a trapping license. This, to me, paints an image of literally decimating areas with no constraints whatsoever. Well, that's just the beginning here. I haven't even, got, I haven't even scratched the surface yet here. Now, you can also kill wolves with a hunting license. Now, with a hunting license, you can start killing wolves on August 10th. In Alaska, the areas I work in and most other areas of Alaska, wolves raise their pups. They have, The pups are born in a den in early to mid-May, and they're attended at a, at a den or a rendezvous site, usually through the end of September into October. They're totally dependent on the adults. They can't hunt. They have The adults leave them at a fixed location and bring food back to them on a regular these basis. Are, these are little pups. Right, exactly. Well, starting about halfway through that period, it's legal to kill these wolves or the wolves they depend on. You, you can, starting August 10th, even though these pups are still being maintained, still being provisioned at a den, you can... Shoot any wolf you can see. It doesn't matter, male, female. It doesn't matter at all. If you come across pups, you can shoot them. But, uh, you know, you, you shoot a wolf that you see out ranging around, it's it's probably out hunting for pups back at a den. And so you shoot that wolf, and, and the pups back at the den just, just wait there forever, and the adults never come back, and they just starve to death slowly. Even worse than that, 
in the spring, as I said, pups are born in early to mid-May. Well, the hunting season legally extends in, in many areas, including right outside Denali National Park, until the end of May. So that means that little pups are born in the den. They didn't even come out of the den for the first time until the first few days of June, usually. Well, uh, an adult or a set of adults or a number of adults may be out hunting. Well, of course, the pups are still nursing in the den, but every once in a while the mother has to go out and find something to eat herself, and maybe her mate and others that are with her are doing the same, but a hunter can come across those wolves before the end of May and shoot them. And, of course, if they shoot the mother, those little pups inside the den are just going to die a very slow death. You know, the mother will never come back. They won't have anybody uh, to keep warm. They won't have anybody to nurse from. And they just die a slow death inside the den. That's all legal. You know, after we've talked about their intelligence, their wisdom, the the information that they store in their heads from years and years of hunting, and they can live for 10 and 15 and longer years, and the fact that they, this is literally a family, uh, the idea that, that uh, they should be treated as if they're just some vermin. Uh, That's and, how uh, they're looked at. And, and taken out for people like myself and you and millions and millions of other people, and quite honestly, most of the people in Alaska, as far as I can tell, they're just really opposed to that. It's, it's it, it is absolutely uh, appalling, and, and, and I have... And I, and I want to emphasize, and this isn't easy for me to say, but it's fellow professionals that are really ultimately behind these policies and the ones who tell the policymakers it's okay to do this and so forth. And I'm speaking specifically of a biologist from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. I have nothing but contempt for the people, that, the biologists within the department who, who advocate and, and, and give their approval to those kind of policies. They would not occur if... The biologists in the state, at the state level, who the state policymakers take their guidance from, told them otherwise. If, if they said, "No, this isn't right. We can't do this. It's not a good idea. Biologically, it doesn't make sense." It wouldn't happen. But it happens because they either say it's fine. There's no problem doing this. And the details are on my website. Well, and wants to read it. You know, uh, there's another aspect to this too. They're actually now uh, encouraging helicopter killing of specific wolves for the purpose of uh, supposedly helping caribou populations. To me, it's almost like a, well, it's a campaign to change public opinion about wolves and how they're affecting populations of, of animals, which is not based on science. Well, there's a lot of aerial hunting already going on that's approved by the Policymaking Board of Game, again, with the recommendations from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Why? And, but, I mean, what's, what's, the, what's the basis for their... Well, you know, it's a complex... Uh, story and, and again, there's just tons of detailed technical as well as other stuff on my website that you can read. But the short of it is that policymakers and hunters in Alaska have been led to believe, again, primarily from publications and reports from biologists, that basically any time you kill wolves, it's going to mean more moose and caribou for them to hunt. Well, that just isn't true. Even if it were, never does anybody consider any of the costs of killing wolves. Just like killing wolves is totally cost-free. There's no scientific, there's no biological cost, there's no ethical cost. It's just like, hey, there's just no cost at all so we can make any mistake we want. Even if we, we think we're erring, it doesn't matter because there's no cost to killing these wolves. They're, they're essentially equated to, to rats at a dump, literally. In fact, one policy-making member of the Board of Game even referred to them that way here recently at the last board of game meeting as rats basically it's frustrating to say the least and sad and revolting and uh, i oftentimes look at these truths and i say you know if you had to buy a wolf 
If wolves are considered, as they are by many people, extraordinary creatures, which they are, they're beautiful, they're intelligent, they're strong, they're uh, so filled with power, and they're magical creatures. If you had to buy one, what is a wolf worth? You know, if you if you looked at all of those factors, you said, "Gosh, what is a wolf worth?" I mean, it'd be probably a thousand dollars or more, just 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 kind of at a, a value. Uh, and and unfortunately, they're being treated as if, as you say, they're they're literally worth nothing. That 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 is inconceivable to me. It's a- I'll tell you what really to me is is just a tremendous irony. You know, here we are. We're an intelligent species, and we seem to have a need to know that we're not alone in terms of other. You know, that there's other intelligent life, and I think you can see that in the way we're sending probes to the depths of the universe right now. We're, 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 we seem to have this desire to know that there's other intelligent life out there to discover it. I mean, I, I think it's because we we want to know we're not alone. And isn't it ironic that at the same time we're spending all this effort sending these probes to the far reaches, that we're trashing intelligent life right in our midst, mm-hmm. non-human, you know, non, other non-human intelligent life right in our midst, the wolves, whales, dolphins, chimpanzees, I mean, these relative handful of species that are clearly head and shoulders above most others in their levels of, of sentience and, and overall intelligence and whatnot and cognition. And uh, that certainly is the case with wolves. I mean, how ironic is that? I couldn't agree with you more. So that's a wonderful way of, of putting that. And, and, and who are we hurting the most? We're hurting ourselves. This is diminishing our own existence. I mean, I mean, these wolves, for example, that I interact with, I mean, they enliven the northern mountains and the forests and the tundra like no other creature. I mean, there are a lot of intelligent things out there, and I appreciate them all and, and I'm enthralled by them all and, and, and consider them all equally important. But the wolves just kind of enliven the country more than anything. And, and, I mean, it just makes the place more worth living in, you know, when you have other intelligent life out there like that. I've often felt that there are there's a difference between people who get it and people who don't, and sometimes it's impossible to reach those who don't. That that life uh, is is a wonder, and that I, these creatures have an extraordinary value. And to those that don't get that, I don't know how we're going to fix that. Well, and it's particularly, as I say, uh, frustrating to me to see so many other biologists in the business that have absolutely no sense of wonder. I think that's the most important ingredient of all. To be a good scientist and a good biologist to have is to have that childlike sense of wonder, and and yet I, I watch biologists in the Alaska Department of Fish and Game who basically are the ones who who draw up all these plans for the policymakers to kill all these wolves, and it's just like I'm looking at robots. They have no no sense of wonder, no appreciation of any of this beauty or fascination. Uh, of course, a lot of it's because they just don't get out there and watch these critters much, but it. it it really frustrates me to see this coming from my own profession. Disgusts me. It's a, it's a better way to describe it. We're talking with Dr. Gordon Haber, who has been studying the Toklat wolves for 41 years now. Uh, you can follow a lot of his work, literally, uh, daily and weekly, and you should. It's a fascinating story. Of the what's, go- what's happening right now to the remnants, for example, of that original Toklat wolf uh, family, um, why don't you give us some information on uh, best ways for people to, first of all, find out what you're doing, but also to help support your work? First of all, let me just emphasize that uh, the last entry I put up on that website was March 15th, just because I've been so busy in the field. But over the next week or two, I expect to put a whole bunch of new stuff up there, and particularly uh, a lot of photographs and so forth. So uh, uh, just keep an eye on that. And as far as uh, 
how my work is supported. I'm very lucky. There's a group back east called Friends of Animals, led by a very uh, capable president, and they provide my funding with no strings attached. I work independently, and you know I don't have to worry about raising money. But if anybody is interested in my work and thinks it's worthwhile, wants to support it, just take a look at the last page of my website called Contribute, and that'll give you details as to how you, if you want to, how you can can help to keep this research going. And, and frankly, I the best way is to is to go straight to the Friends of Animals website and contribute there because they provide my needs, and I don't that frees me of having to worry about raising funds, so that would be the best thing. Well, it's April 1st, and it's spring in the country. What happens this time of the year as you go out now and follow the wolves? Give us a, a, what you're looking forward to. Well, we just finished the most intense period of the year, the courtship and mating period, in late February and, and March, and now uh, it's just a matter of uh, watching the wolves come through the rest of the winter until they start uh, producing their new young in early to mid-May. I look at things in terms of biological years, which basically extend from May to the end of April, and so now I just uh, kind of follow them the rest of the biological year to see what's left when they produce their new young at the beginning of the next biological year in May. Well, it's a fascinating story, and you've uh, dedicated primarily your entire life to to this uh, this quest. But what a fascinating life it's been, I'm sure. I certainly enjoyed it, and I'm doing it because it really is stimulating, and it can be very depressing with all the human killing that's going on. You can imagine what it's like to watch these animals that I get to know very well and suddenly see them ending up in snares. And You know, I really need to ask you, what could listeners do? There's so many challenges before us these days, but... For those people who have the time and the inclination, what could they do? Well, right now, uh, in terms of protection for Denali wolves, uh, the, the policy-making board of game has absolutely refused to consider the issue, at, at least not until after 2010. So the only possibility right now of getting some sort of closure against hunting and trapping in the areas where the problems are occurring just outside the boundary is through the guy who runs the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. The title is Commissioner of Fish and Game. And if you go to my uh, website, the March 1st blog entry, the bottom section of that entry is titled What to Do. And you read that, and down toward the bottom of that section, I have the uh, names and phone numbers and email addresses of the top three uh, managers of the Alaska Department of Fish and Game who are also biologists, the commissioner of Fish and Game, the deputy commissioner for wildlife, and the director of the Division of Wildlife, and then also the governor of Alaska. Send emails and Call those numbers and tell them you want protection for the Denali wolves in the uh, areas indicated on my website. That would be along the Northeast Park boundary. That's where most of the problems are occurring. And I guess that would be the most effective thing for now. It makes me think about the Sea Shepherd and Captain Watson, who's puts himself between the illegal Japanese whaling research vessels in the Arctic and his own ship, uh, the Steve Irwin. The unfortunate thing is that uh, that type of action can be so so dangerous, uh, particularly with people with guns and different things. I'm not suggesting people do that, but I do feel a, a frustration in the fact that it seems as if those people who are willing to really be aggressive and, and in essence, violent pretty much push us out of the way. And it, it, there's an injustice there. That's all I can say. There's just a, a terrific injustice that is that hopefully someday we'll be able to change in this world. Well, I hope it happens sooner than later, especially with regard to a group like this, the Toklat Wolves that have been around for 41 years. What a, what a shame to it would be to lose them. I mean, something that's been
been around so long. It's it's already a big shame to see the hits they're taking and how that's screwing up the chances to learn from them and all the other fascinating things that are possible. As I look at your website and I see them catching bunny rabbits as opposed to some of the grand images that you have from some of their earlier hunts, uh, it's quite a quite a story. Well, even even the way they adapted to the latter decline of the, of the snowshoe hares is pretty fast. shows a lot of intelligence how they adjusted their hare hunting techniques. Yes. yes. People can see that if they go to that particular blog entry, which is, I think it's February 3rd, if I'm not mistaken. Well, Dr. Gordon Haber, I want to say thank you so much for, for all that you do and for taking all this time to talk about this. Uh, uh, we, I, I personally could talk to you for probably days, and maybe someday I'll have a chance to do that. I hope to get up there, and that would be fascinating. Thank you so much for adding your voice here on the Wild Side News. And you're quite welcome. Please, pick up your pen, blast out some emails, call, do what you can. It is, at this time, our only defense. This is Sidney Wildsmith saying adios. Until we meet again next Tuesday or anytime on the archives, when your voice of the earth rings out around the world, here on the Wild Side News.